So, probably one of the most familiar parts of the Bible is actually at the end of Matthew, and we are slowly making our way there. It's in the 28th chapter of the 19th verse, and it goes something like this, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. We know that, Great Commission. It's probably one of the most pronounced verses in all the Bible. What I'm going to share with you today is actually from the 10th chapter, beginning in verse 5, and it moves through verse 15. And I'm going to present it, and you're probably going to think, wow, Pastor, that's a little contradictory, isn't it? I mean, if the good commission of God is to make His name known throughout all the nations, why does He, in this passage, reduce it down to one nation? What's up with that? And on the surface, we might say that that appears contradictory. I can tell you that it's not. That there's purpose. There's a strategic purpose, a process by which Jesus is making His kingdom known. And today's passage fits into that process. So let's begin in verse 5 and read the account as Matthew gives it to us. Chapter 10, verse 5. These twelve Jesus sent out. If you remember from last week, there was a listing of the twelve disciples there. And because they are sent out, they are given uh, the title Apostle. It's more a response to who they are in the activity of God. That an apostle is not a title that one has or a designation as a title, but is more the purpose. They're still the disciples. A disciple is one who is a learner. And so they're still the learners of Jesus, but Jesus is sending out his learners to put them into practice what he has been teaching them. That word, sent out, is the word apostle. It means sent ones. So it's beyond a title. It's really the essence of their life, what God is doing in them. And it's the same for us that we are commissioned, sent out as well. So he has sent the twelve, instructing them, Go nowhere among the Gentiles, and enter no town of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You received without paying, give without pay. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts. No bag for your journey, or two tunics, or sandals, or a staff, for the laborer deserves his food. And whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it, and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it, and if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you, or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet, When you leave that house or town, truly I say to you, it is more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Now, I want to point out for us four parts of this passage. Can I just tell you that there are about 40 that I want to point out, but I am reducing it down because I love you down to four. So let's talk through these. You see them in your handout. They'll be on the screen as well. And I'd love it if you have a pen or pencil in your hand so that you can interact. And just make some notations as the Spirit of God might lead you to. The first point is this. That Jesus calls people who prove to be 
not very heavenly. It's those people that he calls into the kingdom of heaven and commissions them to engage the kingdom of heaven. So that's a big point, isn't it? Uh, It roots down to this. Last week we were talking about the 12 disciples and sort of the motley crew that they are. If you and I were going to put our finger on people throughout the region that we would say Jesus would most closely identify, none of the 12 would be them. In fact, when you look back through the review of the list of the disciples, we are given in the holistic approach of the gospel, we're given a little bit more insight than what one author of a gospel account would give to us, so we see a little bit more. We find Peter, who is sometimes rash and most of the time outspoken, who is the brother of Andrew, the fisherman. You find them being called unto the discipleship to become a learner of Jesus, and now they're being sent out as one who has been learning from Jesus. You have James and John, who have been given the the, uh, title Sons of Thunder, which tells you about their personality, doesn't it? And then you go on through with Philip, the pragmatic, who brings Bartholomew, who's sort of the skeptic of the whole thing, this whole idea of who is the Messiah. Thomas, the pessimist and the doubter. James and Thaddeus, the unknowns. Simon, the zealot, who would probably have killed Matthew had he had opportunity before he came in a relationship with Jesus Christ. And then you have Judas, who is the ultimate betrayer. And those are the people who are making up the discipleship who are becoming the learners of Christ, who are now being commissioned to tell others about this way of Christ and the kingdom of heaven. Those are the ones. Clearly, what God is doing here is saying that He chooses the outcast to go and make His kingdom known to other outcasts. If I could put it in a real succinct way, it would be God chooses outcasts to reach the outcast of the world. So you can't discount who you are. You can't say, oh, but I've got a past. Oh, but I've got a record. Or somebody knows something about me. My friends, that's the very reason why you were chosen of God. That's the reason why He reached down to where you are, to bring you up to where He is with righteousness and holiness and a a call that is eternal and says to you, join me. It's the whole system by which God is put in order for His gospel to be known and for us to give greater glory to Him when He takes someone like you and me and draws them into His kingdom and then commissions us to engage His kingdom to the lost and dying world. This is the work of God and this is the kingdom who says to all, Come unto me. He wishes that none would be lost, that none would would uh, falter, but that all would come to Him with great measure of grace that has been given to them. Can I just say there is no spiritual high water mark that God is watching you wrestle to be able to get to the top of that and say, okay, now she has accomplished or now he has accomplished and they can come into the kingdom. No, my friends, God reaches down in the midst of the depth of your sin and He reaches down with the hand of Jesus and He pulls you to Himself. This is the good news. God is not looking for you to get to some level and say, okay, now he's worthy. When it comes down to it, none of us are worthy for the kingdom. We're all outcast, which makes us pretty good opportunists to be able to engage people who are also outcast. And invite them into the kingdom. Invite them to the door, who is Jesus. So your reputation need not be perfect and your record need not be clean in order to serve the king of heaven. And the disciples are helping us to discover that all the more. 
If we lived in the first century, we would probably really question the notion that Jesus would choose these 12 to be surrounding him. Well, shoot, we live in the 21st century, and I still question the fact that he's chosen us to be around him, to make up his body. But this is the kingdom of God. This is what he's doing. He's providing the access for people who have no worth to be in the kingdom of God. And he's saying, come in. I want you. I want to be in relationship with you. Now, he has to write us, and he has to rid us of sin, and he has to impute his righteousness into us. But he does all that, and he gives us his Holy Spirit by which we can walk in his holy kingdom and live out the expression of that. So like the disciples, we may have a rough background, and we might... We might have a a record that we wish we didn't have and one that we hope nobody finds out about. But none that out, God has chosen us. And he says, in the midst of all that, reach out and bring other people to my kingdom. The way I would engage this in thought is Jesus chooses us to lead out in his kingdom work, leading with a limp. Because you have a wounded past. And you have some effect of that in you. And God's okay with that. To lead out purposeful, to be transformed by Christ, but recognize you still have a little bit of a limp about you. The disciples had that as well. But you see that periodically. You see it in Peter and the things that he says. You see it in Thomas and the quandary that he has. You see it in them. The second point is this, Jesus commissions each of us to proclaim his kingdom and to be his ministers. He was doing the same for the disciples, commissioning them. Now, he gave real specific instructions to the disciples about where they should go, what they should say, and where, uh, what they were to do. In fact, if I were going to put this in a little chart, which I have, uh, it might go something like this in a real simplistic way. Go to the Jews, the house of Israel, and say, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And do the healing of the sick, the raising of the dead, the cleansing of the lepers, and the casting out of demons. Now, this is a very specific instruction given to the apostles. Our instruction is different. Ours is the Great Commission. It's very different for the apostles because Christ was doing a very unique ministry in that time. Now, let's start back. And let's remember the words of Jesus in his first proclamation publicly. Remember what it is? It's the same that John, the forerunner of his, said as well. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And Jesus went to the Jews to share this good news of the kingdom to them. That was the primary target of Jesus. And what Jesus did that we have been reading about in the account of Matthew's gospel is that he too healed the sick, he raised the dead, he cleansed the leper, and he cast out demons. So the ministry of Jesus is now being instructed to the disciples for them to do as well. They are coming alongside of him. If you will, Jesus is taking his ministry and his words and he's multiplying it so that there are six more teams doing the exact same thing. And they are being commissioned with power and authority given them to them by Christ. So the words of Christ, the people that he's engaging, and the things that he's doing are the exact same things that the disciples are doing. 
Now, that's important for us to understand because God is doing something unique here. He is showing what the kingdom of heaven is like. So he's saying to them, the kingdom of heaven is near. Jesus actually says as well, it's in the midst of you. And then he begins to show them what the kingdom of heaven looks like. One day, this spiritual kingdom that Jesus has ushered in is going to be physical. And in that kingdom, it's revolutionary. In this creation for the kingdom of new heaven and new earth, where you and I will reside because we're in faith in God who sent His Son to redeem us, in that there will be no sickness. In that there will be no death. In that there will be none of this that the disciples are having to gauge in. So in every opportunity that they have to heal or to raise the dead or to give sight to the blind or whatever it is, there's a sight, a glimmer, a little glimpse of what the kingdom of God is going to be like. Now, our call is different from that. I pray for healings of people. I pray for the oppression to be lifted from people. But most of the time, that prayer goes unanswered in this world. You say, well, Randy, don't you want the apostolic power that they had? Yes, I prayed for that. But God is doing differently today. It doesn't mean that He's not a God of miracle. He is, and I've seen that. I've seen people and witness people go through miracles, and I've seen them testify of it and His goodness and His glory. And every time I try to remind them, what you have experienced is just a taste of of a grand buffet that will be ours in the new heaven and the new earth. You've just got a little flavor of it right now because this is very temporary. If I could raise the dead, I would raise them, but they would die again. And if I could heal the sick, I would touch them and heal them, but they will be sick again. But in the kingdom, it won't be like that. In the glorious eternal kingdom of God, it is permanent because we will have a glorified body without sin. But the disciples are helping us to discover that. What is our call today in the commission? It's not to raise the dead. It's not to uh, free those who are demon-possessed. It's not to heal the sick. Instead, the miraculous is seen with the evidence of a transformed heart. And this is more difficult than any of the others. In fact, Jesus said, a new command I give you, love one another. And then he gives the measure by which this love is to be. As I have loved you, you love others. And then he tells us in verse 35, By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now let me ask you a question. If God empowered me, if God gave me authority to be able to heal or to raise or to cast out, which would be more difficult, to speak those things or to exercise out of the new heart of love to give love to those who are not very loving. I can tell you it would be a whole lot easier to say, be healed, if the power is God's, than it is to live out with this transformed heart filled with love to engage people in loving ways. So what the disciples were doing is the same thing Jesus had been doing. John describes this as the witnesses the witnesses of Christ, that He is the Son of God, is that God Himself testifies, this is my Son in whom I'm well pleased. They heard the voice of God do that. The Word of Jesus testifies to this. The Spirit of Christ testifies to Him. And the miracles testify. 
So the miracles show who Christ is. He wasn't just randomly doing miracles. For instance, he feeds the 5,000 with bread, and then he declares himself just a short bit later, I'm the bread of life. He raises someone from the dead, but right before that he says, I am the resurrection and the life. So every miracle is to engage and testify to who he is as the Son of God. So those who are specifically commissioned as his apostles are those who are also engaging in kingdom work that they represent with Christ the Son of God and what he's doing. Ours is a different representation. Ours is a transformed heart. That God can take a heart that is hardened. That God can take a heart that is sinful. And He can transform it into something that is righteous. Something that is holy. And something that is loving. And outside of God doing that, it will not be done. So when we exercise in that miraculous heart transformation, Christ is known as being the Redeemer, the transformer of our beings and our life. This is the ministry at hand for the church. So I would say, if I were putting this back together in a table, it would go like this. Go to all the world, church, and make disciples. Make the teachings of Christ known. And say that the kingdom of God has come. The kingdom of heaven has come. And name Jesus as the king of the kingdom and identify him as the gate to the kingdom. He's the door. And I would say our going ought to be like this. In fact, if you're looking for a motto of life, this might be it. That we would love God, love people, live it out authentically before them in Christ for His glory. So if you want to know what your job is, no matter what the occupation is, if you want to know what your job is, it is to love God, love people, live authentically that way before them in Christ Jesus For His glory, whether you're a cop, a police officer, attorney, somebody who works in the medical field, a pastor, a student, whatever it is you do, that is what we do. It's what we say, and it's where we go. Then, number three, Jesus provides every resource needed for gospel ministry. I love the instructions that He gives to the disciples because they're just so odd. But he has purpose behind him. Uh, Read back with me on the screen, verse 8, the latter half. You received without paying, now give without pay. Now, fortunately for me, this was specific to just those 12 and not preachers of the 21st century. (laughs) This is what he says to them. Now, listen, what I gave you, you didn't have to pay for. So as you go and give it, don't expect pay for it as well. Uh, I'm very grateful for your pay, by the way. So have my boys been over the life that they've lived by your hand provision. Uh, God works in caring for his ministers and his workers of kingdom work, and I'm grateful for that. The Apostle Paul is very clear about the Lord's instructions there. But in this case, he tells them, I don't want you to expect anything. And catch this, it goes deeper than that. I don't want you to take anything. I mean, he basically says that, don't take any money. You know, they didn't carry wallets like we do. They carried money belts. Don't take anything in your money belt. No gold, silver, copper coins. You don't need to take a bag because you don't need to take a change of clothes. I'll provide that for you. Don't carry sandals, a staff with you. Don't worry about those things. Don't hesitate when somebody is hospitable to you. Accept their hospitality. 
Now you might say, well, what's up with that? Well, I think what he's doing is a huge life lesson, a little OJT, if you will. I remember not long ago I was teaching on a Wednesday night and there was some 30-ish people there and I had said something about OJT and they came up to me afterwards and said, what are you talking about? What is OJT? I said, well, step number one, you have to have a job. <laughs> Actually, they were very gainfully employed. I said, OJT is where you get put in the job and somebody shows you the job hand in hand. So it's not like you're taking a class about the job. You're actually doing the job, and the measure by which you can do it is much deeper, and the speed by which you get it is much faster. OJT. And that's what Jesus is doing. A little OJT with his disciples. Now reach back with me, if you will, to your memory banks when we were going through the Sermon on the Mount, beginning in chapter 5. One of the first things of the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus did was taught them how to pray. He taught them to recognize the holiness of God, the hallowed name of God. But then right after that, remember what he says? He instructs them to pray, your kingdom come. Your kingdom come. Now, what were the words that they heard Jesus say? The kingdom of heaven is here. And what were the words that he declared for them to say as they were going throughout all the house of Israel? Tell them that the kingdom of God has come. The kingdom of heaven is here. So a little OJT, what they've been praying for, is actually coming about right now. All right, remember the sermon. Right after the prayer, remember what Jesus instructs them? Don't be anxious about anything. Don't worry about what you're going to wear. Don't worry about what you're going to eat, what you're going to drink. You remember all that talk? Uh, if I can take care of the birds, don't you think I can take care of you? If I can clothe the lilies of the field and all their adornment, don't you think I can clothe you? And now what is he telling them to do? I want you to go on this gospel mission where you're making my kingdom known, and I don't want you to carry clothes. I don't want you to carry food in your knapsack. I want you to trust me. I want you to learn to be dependent on me, to not be anxious I'll take care of you. And where you find hospitality, accept it because that's me. That's me providing for you. I love how Christ has given them great measure by which they can pray about things, hear the instruction from Jesus about life, and then he puts them in the practical position by which they can receive it and live it out. You know he does the same for us. He'll give instruction by His Word as you and I are in it every day. He'll give us instruction today, whether it's in life group or in here. He'll give you instruction throughout the day. But then every now and then, He thrusts us into a place where we have to be totally reliant and dependent on that Word that He has given to us. And it's a measure of faith where we say, Okay, God, I'm either going to trust you or I'm not going to trust you. He wants to find us faithful. He's given us opportunity to exercise in that faith. And then you see point number four. Actually, let me go back a little bit because uh, there's this section of, about faithfulness. It's not just about the, the apostles, but about those who are receiving the apostles. This whole notion about hospitality is pretty huge because there's a measure of sacrifice to the gospel goer, the one who goes and makes the gospel known. But there's also a measure of sacrifice to the gospel giver. And so those who are going are being received. And they are being provided for by those who are receiving this gospel. 
This is an ebb and flow, a rhythm of ministry. In fact, this is part of what I love about Meadowbrook. That not only are we commissioned to go and we're responsive to that locally and globally, but we are to be givers for the ones going as well. It's both. It's not a choice, but it's both. And both are exercising a measure of sacrifice and faith as they go and as they give. Did you know this year, Meadowbrook will give a quarter of a million dollars to Southern Baptist missionaries who are already gone, who are already on the field? You're providing a quarter of a million dollars for their salaries and their supplies to make the name of Christ known and the kingdom of God known among the nations. And you give tens of thousands of dollars over that specifically to missionaries that we have identified in pockets around the world where we really want the gospel to be multiplied. You're doing that kind of work. So it's not just that we're sending people out, but that we are providing for those who are being sent. It's both goers and givers. And God is greatly honored by that kind of sacrifice. Now, number four. Jesus expects our faithfulness, not our success. The Holy Spirit alone moves in the heart of a person. Have you ever uh, cooked with a pressure cooker? My wife does not let us cook often with a pressure cooker because somebody has told her that the whole house will blow up if you use a pressure cooker. But I like to ramp things up every now and then, and I like to cook with a pressure cooker when I can find it after she's hidden it somewhere. But on the pressure cooker, the reason why it's not going to blow up the house is because it has a relief. It has a release on it. Automatic. I can remember, I can hear it right now, see the kitchen, my mom canning, and with that little top relief just dancing around. Mine's a little kettle, just moves around like this. It's just releasing the tension, right? The pressure. Every now and then, I get one of those spiritual releases, and I need it. Because in my flesh, I start to build up pressure. In my mind, I start to build up pressure, and the pressure for me typically has to revolve around success. Am I successful? Did I accomplish? Did I produce? Now, the reason why that's pressure is because God has not made me to do that. That's His job. That's not my job. The only pressure I have is, am I submissive? Am I obedient? Am I faithful? If I'll do that, then I don't have to worry about the results. The Spirit of God worries about the results. So today, I long for people to be saved. And I wish I had the means by which I could personally save you. Because if I did, there wouldn't be a single one of you who would walk out of here without Christ Jesus at the very core of who you are and identified by heaven's roles that you are a child of God. But that's not me. That's the Spirit. So I need the pressure release to say, okay, Lord, I'm going to be faithful to, to preach your word. The results are up to you. What is it in your life that builds up pressure that's not yours to have, that's God's? And maybe you need to think differently about that. Is it your significance? Your popularity? Your accomplishments? How are you identifying yourself? I'd be very careful. I'm hearing myself say this as well. Those things build up pressure that typically manifest in ways that we don't want them to manifest. And we just need to yield. 
Now, I wasn't expecting to say all that, but perhaps there's somebody else in this room that struggles like I do. And the Spirit would say, why don't you let me do what I do? You do what you're supposed to do. So Jesus alone, by His Spirit, is the one that moves in the hearts of people. The apostles were just to go, find a person of peace, share this good news that the kingdom of God had come. You just be faithful. You just be obedient. The results will be up to God. Now, if they find a person of peace, that means that they're going to establish themselves there. That becomes the hub of their ministry for that area. So maybe they're in a walled city. Maybe they're in a village. And they go into that place. They share the good news of the kingdom. The person is receptive of that. They settle. For the next few days, this is where they're going to minister. Or maybe they don't settle there because the person's a rejecter, a denier, one who discounts. Jesus says, in that case, you shake off the dust. Now we've got two options. You can settle in or you can shake off the dust. To settle in, by the way, is a pretty good system for us today. If you're in the workplace and you're wanting to make a gospel movement, you find the person of peace and you settle close to them. You share with them the gospel and you begin to bring a transformation to them by the Word of God, by just living out the expression of the Word and sharing verbally the expression of the Word and disciple them. And the reason why you're doing that is because you are not going to always be right there in that place. You're going to step away and you want that mission, that ministry to continue while you're gone. So you're going to find that person of peace in the workplace. Or maybe it's the way you select what ball team you and your family are part of. That you pray, Lord, where can we be an influence? And then as you're placed on a team, now who's the person of peace you want me to share with? So that I can bring about a discipling measure and multiplication of ministry. Or maybe it's the way in your classroom or whatever. That's one avenue. The other avenue is the person's a rejecter and denier. And the Lord says, just shake off the dust. You're going to have to go through some no's before you get to a yes. And for the movement of the Jews, that was a very pronounced thing. If they were going to walk from village to village, which they often do, they would bypass a Gentile, prominent Gentile village because it was a place of uncleanliness. In fact, you would not go into a Gentile home if you were a Jew because you would thereby be ceremonially unclean. You would skirt around as far as you had to to get around Samaria or any other place where Gentiles would live. And if you had to go in there, when you left, you would shake off the dust because you wouldn't want any of that unclean dust to come into the purity of your Jewish village. Now Jesus tells his disciples, when you find somebody who's a rejecter and denier of this good news, when you find them to be opposed to it, just shake off the dust right there. And for the Jews who saw that happen, it was a trigger for them. They're indicating my lack of faith in God and His Word is going to bring judgment upon me like it does to the unbelieving Gentiles. All the disciples were called to do was be faithful to what God commissioned them to do. Go where He told them to go, say what He told them to say, and do it in the means he told them to, to do it. What about you? If God moves you to share the gospel, could you do it today? If God puts you in connection, which he divinely does often, 
with someone who is unsaved, who needs the gospel shared with them, could you say it? Could you do it in a succinct manner? Could you live out the words of your testament? And could you share verbally that testament? I've asked Hunter to come and share with us a little quick and concise statement about the gospel. It's called Three Circles. You'll notice in your handout, there's a box in your handout that you can actually draw along with him. We're going to show you a diagram. Envision yourself at a restaurant. You pull over a napkin, you take out a pen, and you begin to draw out the gospel as you're about to see it. So if you would, as Randy said, there's a box in your handout. Just follow along with me. It's going to be up on the screen as well. So as you're building relationships, as you're seeking out intentional opportunities to share the gospel with people, Maybe it's your family, maybe it's your coworkers, friends, neighbors, whoever it may be. You're praying for these people. You're praying for opportunities that God will give you to share the gospel with them. And some conversations start to come up that you might be sensing that the Holy Spirit might be prodding you to share the gospel with them. They may be asking questions about God and what you believe. Or maybe they just might be telling you a little bit more about themselves. Tell them about some of the things that they're dealing with in their life. Some of the brokenness that they're dealing with. And that's an opportunity that God has given us to take that conversation that we would have every day with those who we are close to and turn it into a gospel conversation. So when they share something like a, a brokenness, maybe it's a broken marriage that they're dealing with, maybe their marriage is failing, maybe they have some strife between their, uh, a parent and a child, or there's some just hardness that they're going with, a bitterness that they're dealing with, maybe it's even financial brokenness, whatever it may be, that's an opportunity to go, you know what? I have dealt with brokenness just like you have, because we all have. We all have dealt with the brokenness of this world, the sickness, the pain, the death, that this world brings. Uh, so I'm thinking, you know what? I've, I've dealt with something like that. Maybe not the same thing. Maybe it is the same thing. Can I tell you a little bit about how God has worked in my life and through that brokenness? Because then you can, what I want you to do is on the, on the top left corner, draw a circle and write God's design. What you can say, because you know, God's design for you is not your failed marriage or divorce or the fact that your loved one died. That's not God's design. God's design is the opposite of brokenness. It's wholeness. It's harmony. Maybe write those two words down, wholeness and harmony. Perfection may be a good word. But we have left God's design because we have sinned. So draw a big arrow over to the right and write the word sin over the top. And you really don't need to spend too much time here because people recognize their sin. People recognize most of the time that they're a sinner and that there's things that they've done that have been offensive to others and to God. And that sin has caused us to leave God's design and enter into a realm of brokenness. So write, draw another circle on the right and write the word brokenness in it. Brokenness has two ends. That gets me every time. Mm-hmm. But, and then draw some little squiggly arrows out, out, out that way. The squiggly arrows represent the ways that we try to fulfill our brokenness, the ways we try to numb our brokenness. And everyone tries to. It's, maybe it's through religion. Some, maybe it's through church. Maybe it's a family, a job, a career. Maybe it's through acquiring wealth, security. Maybe it's the goal of retirement, whatever it is. Things that aren't necessarily bad. People try to fulfill their brokenness with that. Sometimes it is bad things. It's destructive habits. It's sins. It's addictions. It's, it's things that, that they are seeking just to numb the pain that they have. But ultimately, none of those things, whether they're good things or bad things, none of those things fulfill or fix the brokenness that we have. And they actually just lead us back to brokenness. Whatever it is, if it's, not, if it's not the gospel, it doesn't fix your brokenness. It just leaves you there. So now I want you to draw a circle at the bottom and write that word gospel. 
Gospel is just a, a, a Christian word that we, that we use that means the good news of Christ. It's the good news of salvation. And the good news of salvation is simple. Jesus came. He lived the perfect life that we are supposed to live but can't. We can't live it. We don't live it from, from birth throughout to death. We are, we, there is no, no shade of perfection in us. We cannot live the perfect life that God's law demands. But thankfully, God provided what he demanded in Jesus Christ. And he lived that life for us. And then he died on the cross because he was rejected by his own people. He was rejected by those he loved. And on the cross, God took our sin and our brokenness and put it on Christ. Put it on Jesus. And he took it to the grave. And three days later, he rose again, victorious over sin and over death and over the enemy. And over the brokenness of this world, Jesus was victorious. And he proved that he was who he said he was. He proved that he was the Son of God. That he was the resurrection of the life. That he was the one who could lay his life down and pick it back up. God proved that. And he offers eternal life to all those who repent and believe in the gospel. So draw an arrow from brokenness down to gospel and write the words repent and believe. Repent is just another word, is the word the Bible uses for change. Turning, but it's a, it's a specific change because you're turning from your brokenness and your sin and you're turning to Jesus. You're changing from you being in control of your life to God being in control of your life. You're submitting to Jesus as Lord. And then believe. You believe the story of the gospel. You believe what I just told you. You believe that Jesus came and he died and he rose again and he's going to come back again and restore all things to himself. You believe that. The Bible says if you believe with your heart, that God raised Jesus from the dead and confess with your mouth that he is Lord, you will be saved. That is a promise that we can take and we take, it on it, take him on it every day. And when the gospel, when someone repents and believes in the gospel, another miracle happens. God sends his Holy Spirit and he indwells that believer. And they begin to recover and pursue God's design. So write an arrow from gospel up to God's design. And what that is, is it, God begins to take the brokenness in our life, the sin, the shame, the... Uh, addictions, the, the, fail, the failure that we experience, and he begins to redeem it. He begins to transform us. And he begins to move us from our brokenness back to, that, back to God's design of wholeness and harmony and perfection, which will one day be ultimately realized when Jesus comes back and, and, and gathers his church and we, and we live in the physical kingdom forever and ever. So that's right there. As we just walked through a gospel message. You don't have to use the same words that I did, but it's a way that we can share the gospel. And at this point, you, the person you've been, you've been talking with who's been listening, you go, now where do you see yourself on this thing? What circle do you see yourself living in right now? Maybe they see themselves living in brokenness. Maybe they don't realize the fact that they're a sinner, and then that's, there's not much really you can do there. But maybe if they recognize their brokenness, you go, well, what today is preventing you from repenting and believing in the gospel? And you invite them to come to Christ. And you're going to get three responses. They're either going to accept it, they're going to reject it, or they're going to go, you know what, I don't know yet. And so you pray for them and you, and you keep going. And that's a simple tool that we can use to turn some of our everyday conversations into gospel conversations. Yeah, thank you, Hunter. Go ahead. He, he could use the affirmation, I'm sure. You might say, well, he's, he's pretty doggone good at that. And you can be too. You say, okay, how do I know more? How can I practice that? Go on Meadowbrook's website, meadowbrookbaptist.com, and you'll see that three circles image on the front screen. Click it, 
and you'll see a, a presentation and you'll see some helps for you to learn that very simple process. If you can draw three circles and remember God's design, brokenness, and you see the third there is the gospel, then you got it and you can fill in, in the gaps. The, the drawing is really more for your memory cues as it is anything, but just go on there and look at it a few times, practice it with somebody, then catch this. Sometime this week, to a neighbor or a coworker or a friend or whoever, somebody that your heart might be given towards to share the gospel, go to them and say, my church has challenged me to learn how to communicate the good news of God. Would you let me practice on you? And when you practice, God's word is so authoritative and powerful that the spirit might just use that word to transform the heart of that individual. And then you'll get that first one under wrap. I would encourage you to, to do just that. If you're more technical savvy, you can download the app, which is entitled Life Conversation Guide, and then you can have it on your smartphone. All right, so let me close with four questions very quickly. Number one, is it evident that you have a heart transformation of the gospel, that it's authentic, that you have had this miraculous transformation and if not, are you still in brokenness? And if you are, would you surrender to repent and believe unto Christ today? It might be that God has brought you here not to hear a message about going and telling the good news, but God has brought you here today to come and receive the good news. I would receive it as truth and submit yourself to it. The second question is, how is it evident before God and others that you are living intentionally as one commissioned by Jesus Christ to share the gospel? So we have all been commissioned by Christ. How is that intentionality seen? How is God identifying that? And how are others identifying that? Number three, what people group or individuals are you specifically praying for? Is there somebody at your workplace Somebody in your neighborhood, is there a specific country, a specific tribe or tongue that you're praying for? And in praying for them, you are moving towards them to be one to proclaim the gospel. And then number four is, would you purpose to know, practice, and share a gospel presentation? You might have learned something. It might be your own testimony and how the Word of God has spoken to you. That's fine. It might be the Roman road. I can do that. It might be four spiritual laws. That's good. It might be faith, F-A-I-T-H. Whatever it is, would you know it, practice it, and pursue it in regular conversation? For this is the commission of Christ for us. Now, before you start discounting yourself, let me remind you, that God uses outcast to reach the outcast of the world. And if God can use the 12, He can and does choose to use us. And we're grateful for that. Let's pause and pray. In this moment, Lord, I pray that you would speak by your Spirit in a continuous way, that we would hear your call. We pray, God, that you would fill us with courage and faith, boldness, confidence in you and your word, that our hearts would be filled with love and compassion for the lost, the hurting. So help us, God, to do this work 
that you have prescribed from us from eternity past. We pray for the one that you've drawn in this place who is still in a place of brokenness. We pray, God, today they have seen a design for their salvation predetermined a long time ago through Jesus Christ. So I pray for them that they would step in faith today to you. Repent of the way that they're living and the sin in which they've embraced. Reject it, deny it, walk away from it, submissive to you. We pray this for the glory of Jesus and for the goodness of life that he has provided for us. In his name.